0: I wrote this thing, I hope you like it, let's talk about it, yeah, let's lose track, losing the plot podcast, losing the plot podcast, losing the plot podcast.
1: Leo
0: Hello everyone and welcome to the first Losing the Plot of 2019. I'm your host Leo Robertson, roughly every week or so I find the creative person whose work I enjoy, they're often a writer, they don't have to be. We talk about their work, we talk about life, we talk about anything and everything, we lose the plot together, hence the title of the show. Our guest this episode is Jen Stroud-Rossman, she is the debut author of the novel The Place You're Supposed to Laugh... That's out with 713 Books, who you've heard from before with uh, some previous guests. Uh, it's a literary novel that takes place in Silicon Valley in 2002 for reasons that Jen herself will explain. Uh, but I think it's uh, it will be a great read for any fans of literary fiction out there. And I had a great chat with Jen, who is both a novelist and a professor of mechanical engineering. And so uh, since I myself, as I'm an engineer by day, uh, I was interested in her insights into um, the divide between the two disciplines and, and how she considers those part of her identity. So that was it was really interesting to hear from her on that and of course on many other topics. And I hope you enjoy our chat. And so here it is. Hello. Hey, hi, Leo. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you doing?
1: I'm all right.
0: Uh, you... Uh, tell me.
1: Can, uh, can you see me? I can't
0: see you, no. Do you want Okay,
1: to we'll see on? how we can handle that.
0: You can turn video on if you want. There you go. Uh? Ah, there you are. That looks better. <laughs> but lots of books behind you. That's great. <laughs>
1: oh, yeah, that's only a small fraction, I'm afraid.
0: I'm a bit of an addict. <laughs> I am. I'm. I'm working. I'm working to help construct a, an, an offshore platform in a yard here in on an island in Stord. It sorry in an island called Stored in Norway, and they had to ship all of my stuff, and it's just all cupboards, every free space filled with books.
1: Um, <laughs> you really have to choose though right when you put them in storage where you did you call the collection at all or did you just
0: oh there's I everything? mean there's lots of them in boxes but then of course it's so the ones in boxes are so exciting because you can't see them and then I just pile books on top of them and right yeah you
1: just think <laughs> it'll be when you open them all up again and like hey there's that book
0: <laughs> it's so like, good right <laughs> yes yeah, so it's good so are you back from your tour where have you been
1: Um, so I was just in Chicago last week, um, and I sort of have some downtime, um, and then in mid-January, I go out to California.
0: Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. Uh, where the book is set, of course. Indeed. Indeed. So
1: it's kind of, kind of cool. Um, although it's a lot easier to make sort of, um, quips about, uh, how absurd and surreal Silicon Valley is when you're not in Silicon Valley so we'll see how those jokes play <laughs> uh, <laughs> <good point.
0: laughs> hopefully if you get a sympathetic audience of people who know what you're talking about I'm sure it'll go the best. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm glad we could finally talk and I've been super excited to talk to you uh, because you're you're a writer and an engineer um, I am and there's there's very few of those, right?
1: Um, yeah, there's a, there's a few. I mean, I think there's more sort of scientist writers. Um, there maybe aren't so many engineer writers. Um, I know, for example, the guy who wrote The Martian was an engineer mm-hmm. until he wrote that. I think Hugh Howey, who wrote Wool, was an engineer. Um, but I, I think both of, the, both of those are past tense. <laughs> like, I think once their books hit, they were like, okay, enough of this. Mm. Um, but I'm gonna, I'm still doing both. Um, of course my books haven't been quite as successful as theirs. so.
0: No, well, I mean, there's still time. I mean, this one's only been out Fair a few enough. months. Yeah. It's new. Yeah. <laughs>
1: it's early days yet.
0: <laughs> and they're kind of, they're, they're men writing cerebral science fiction type stuff as well. It's not, it, it's, um, yeah, I mean, you're you're writing, like, proper, I was about to say proper literature, which is kind of rude, but you know what I'll I mean. Take, I'll take
1: that. <laughs> That's true. I think a lot of people kind of ex- expect, if when they find out that I'm a writer, they're like, oh, you must write about, um, you know, science fiction or something like that. I said, no, I'm not even really qualified to talk about science fiction because I haven't read it very widely. Um, I write just kind of literary people stories, not... Mm. Um, adventure stories or technology stories
0: which pursuit did you find first were you always reading first or did you discover a passion for engineering first how did that come about
1: I mean I suppose I should probably be interviewing my parents uh, and asking whether I started um, reading stories and writing my own stories first or whether they thought I was entranced by Legos and erector sets and blocks first I feel like they were probably happening together um but I definitely, I was a kid who was very into reading stories and imagining myself into the worlds of books. Um, you know, I wanted to be Trixie Belden, uh, you know, Joe in Little Women. Th- those, that's what I wanted to do. Um, and then as soon as I could form letters, I wanted to write those stories for myself. Um, I didn't really know what engineering was until, like, I was finishing high school and I certainly took a lot of math and science classes, but I had a physics teacher who kind of said, you, you should maybe look at engineering when you go to college. And my very uh, practical parents said, yes, we endorse this idea that you pursue something likely to lead to gainful employment. Um, and they were fond of saying, you know, you could always write, um, which, which is interesting. Um, I have to think about how I say this. My, my dad uh, had been a professional musician right up until he finished his MBA and then kind of set that aside. Uh, and so that, that sort of sense of, well, you can always do that creative pursuit, uh, I'm not sure that he, his own experience really bore that out, uh, hmm. that he kept that uh, in, his, in the balance he might have liked for himself. Hmm. Then again, he also had a family, and I know that disrupts the balance.
0: That's an interesting one because you hear people say, like, I, I do. I waste way too much time on Twitter, and I look at sometimes there's uh, writers who debut debut later in life, like yourself, and I want to talk about that. But um, they say, you know, what? What's the rush? Why are these young writers so, you know, why why are they so keen to, you know, get their stuff published right now? Why don't they just take their time? And it's like, well. There's no guarantee this will ever work out for anyone if you if you know this is right. your passion, and especially if you' like maybe you have more time, maybe the family and the kids and the 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 serious corporate job that distracts you with the money and the long hours is going to come later. You don't know. I, I just think that whenever somebody discovers their passion for something, they should just dedicate as much time as they have to it as, as soon as possible.
1: I think that's great advice. Um but it is tricky if you have more than one passion, right? How do you decide how to distribute your energy? Mm-hmm. Uh, so having had two, <laughs> I, I tried to learn as much as I could about mechanical engineering, but was always taking literature and creative writing classes all sort of on the sly. Um, and then I think one way to pursue my love of writing would have been to get an MFA and not continue studying engineering. Um, but the way I did it instead, was sort of a do-it-yourself MFA, um, reading widely, uh, taking workshops wherever possible, um, and trying to learn as much as I could, I think that's obviously a much slower way to, to get to a place where you have a debut novel. But along the way, you're also living your life and maybe having experiences that enrich the kinds of stories you have to tell and the range of people you can empathize with. I mean, maybe. I mean, there's obviously 21-year-olds who already have it all lined up. Um, I'm, I just wasn't that. I was someone who needed to, to work really hard at it and study um, and practice until I got here.
0: Hmm. Well, I mean, you've... Uh, your book... I, I'm, I'm taking everything in order, of course, but I mean, your book <laughs> just is so complex and funny and the world you've built and the characters and everything. It's like this is it's not like, all of that shows, you know, you've obviously, Thank you. yeah, it, it, all of your experience and, and all of your skill and the way you balance the different, you know, points of view and get into the characters' heads. Like it's, it's, it's an amazingly complex book. And um, I, what I, I, I just have the PDF, right? So I was reading, mm-hmm. I was just reading the PDF on the screen, but when I got a third of the way through, I ordered a paperback because I thought <laughs> I'm going to read this properly and uh, then pass it on to my sister, which is the, the highest compliment I can give a book.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. Thank you.
0: Yeah. So I, I hope I've, I, I, like I say, I wanted to wait until I get the paper copy. So I've got about halfway through. I hope that's okay. I've got lots of questions about it anyway. <laughs> I know a lot of these characters. Um, can you describe, like, would you say that either of these pursuits is a calling? Are they both a calling?
1: I don't That's a really good question. I think... I feel I don't feel especially called to be an engineer, but I do feel called to to teach. Um, and so the fact that I get to teach students, um, some of whom want desperately to be engineers, and some of whom uh, have been sort of somehow cajoled to get into my classroom, and and I get to persuade them that engineering is a way of thinking and seeing the world and there, that sort of the interaction of engineering and society and culture might interest them. Um, I definitely love that I get to have those conversations with, with students. Um, and I learn from them and they, I hope learn from me. And that does feel like sort of a vocation, right? A calling, um, an avocation, I guess. And, um, If I were a little more confident, I might say I feel called to write, but I do feel compelled to write. It's a compulsion. When I don't do it, um, even if there isn't any time or any quality time available, I force myself to make the time. It's scraps of time, leftover time. But if I'm not writing and engaged with thinking about what makes books work and stories work, then I'm, I'm not living my whole life. So so I, I don't know. Calling is such a, a strong and powerful word. Um, and I, I don't know that in either of these contexts, what I offer is as significant um, as, as it might be. Um, it feels kind of self-important to call it a calling. But but I again, I can't imagine not doing both those things. So I guess I am uh, called in some way to do them.
0: Hmm. That, yeah, that's a great answer. I mean, the reason I ask is I think that people have more kind of insecurities. Of, they have way more insecurities about calling themselves a writer than they do an engineer.
1: If, oh, yeah. Well, like, there's, um, you know, the, for for engineering, there's a very real sort of, um, you know, you, you are trained uh, to think a certain way, to develop a certain set of skills and methodologies, and you are educated to think that way. And you kind of get this seal of approval, right? That this degree says you know certain things. You can even become licensed as an engineer, where literally your seal on a you know set of drawings would mean you're accountable for what's there. Um, and and with writing, even as much as you study, I think you're you're always just painfully aware of the the gaps and the limitations of your own abilities and knowledge, right? There's there's so many books. I could never possibly read them all. And there's so many amazing writers who do so many different things. There's no way I could possibly master all of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so maybe just the, the way um, engineering education has been more um, – it, it feels like almost a, a licensing – or, or uh, something where you can say, well, these are the things I know and I'm accountable for them uh, in a way that writing doesn't feel that way to me.
0: It's funny because it, when I was in university studying engineering, process engineering, like if there was somebody <laughs> two years ahead of me and they were designing like a whole process system, I would go, God, maybe I'll never be that good. But I wouldn't take it. I wouldn't take it personally. I wouldn't make it feel it, it didn't feel like like, that means I'm not, I'm not, like, uh, that my experience of the world isn't valid, you know, it's like, if you get it wrong in writing, then you haven't really experienced life properly, if you're, like, not clever enough to do engineering, it's like, it doesn't matter in the same way, you can't take it as personally, right?
1: Yeah, that's true, and I do feel like, as much as I've written about engineering and produced engineering knowledge, um, I don't feel as personally bound to those products as I do to this novel. This novel feels like an internal organ of mine that I am presenting to you um, and asking for your approval of, right? Like, and please be gentle with it. In a way, I don't feel um, about things I like design or or write or produce in engineering. Um, I think, too, the way we think um, when we're thinking as engineers, um, is very methodical, and so even when you are thinking about those students who are two years ahead, you're like, "But I know, I know, there's a path to get there, right? Like, I know if I study this subject and then this subject, and I master these various projects and, and exams and things, like I will attain that knowledge. And I mean, I can, I can reverse engineer Zadie Smith's White Teeth forever." And I'll never have that sort of that that energy and dynamism that is in that book, right? I and I and mimicking it won't won't get me there, um, where I can I can feel like pretty competent as just sort of a mimic in engineering. You know, I'd like these are the these are the skills, these are the equations. It's a it's a whole different thing, as you say. It's personal. There's emotion. There's artistry um, in in I think fiction. For me, anyway, that's that's a little unlike what i see yeah, in engineering although I could compare them I could talk about how they're both creative and they're you know they both involve um certain kinds of uh storytelling and creativity but but again there's something emotional and resonant and uh and almost ineffable about literature when it's really clicking uh that for me is different
0: mm-hmm. I, that's some. Um, that's I think yeah that's it's really true like um I'm definitely going to be cutting a lot of what I'm saying as well. I really apologize. But, Fantastic. <laughs> uh, it's funny, I read something recently, it was A. M. Holmes was talking about her love of Raymond Carver stories. Mm. And she said it's like she said something like they were boxes that you could put your hand in trying to reach for what was in there, but you would just your hand would come out and there would be mist on it. And I thought I thought that mm. was really interesting the way she said that, because it's like when you're trying like when I was trying to learn writing applying the methodology of engineering like oh i'll just read the books and i'll get there it's like like what makes a good story is what makes something last is the inability to pick it apart or to replicate it and um it's that it's it's kind of a relief when you realize that that there is an unknowability about it. it's not something you're doing wrong it's it's the nature of the thing itself
1: well and there's there's a chemical reaction right between the the writing on the page and the reader reading it, and so you know I might not have been able to articulate what my book is about in the same way that it might resonate, and those themes might just leap out at a particular reader um, so you know even having produced the thing, you maybe don't fully understand it or the way it 's going to to have that almost alchemical interaction with a reader's own experience and context
0: mm. yeah very good point um so you, you took a lot of different courses over the years. Mm-hmm. Are there any in particular that stick out as having, I don't know, really interesting lessons that you needed to hear?
1: Well, I was supremely lucky to get to work with Jim Shepard um, when I was at the Tin House workshop. So it's, you know, it's only a week. It's a really short time, but it it feels like one of those super intense, concentrated experiences, like, like, you know, camp when you're a kid, you're like, these are my best friends forever. We'll, we'll stay in touch always. This is so perfect. Um, and it, it's this sort of carved out separate from your real life thing too, which makes it extra special. Um, but Jim Shepard, uh, who's a great writer and whose stories, uh, I just adore. I mean, uh, the Netherlands lives with water is genius. Um, and I, you don't have to be a genius writer to be a genius teacher, but I think he's both. He, uh, in this workshop, would have us practice very close reading of stories in a way that, that almost could feel like reverse engineering them, but he would have us locate the things that um, might have felt out of place or a little bit dissonant in the story, which are the things that usually as an as a amateur, as a learning uh, you know, apprentice writer, you would cut. You'd be like, ah, oh, this doesn't. I, uh. And he would help us to understand, patiently, uh, with great humor, uh, that how often those dissonant moments were actually the whole point of the thing, and that the work of revision would be to sort of pull that sort of strange, not quite right thing into proper uh, spotlight, bring it, bring it forward. And he called that sort of embracing the weirdness. And, um, and I'm a, you know, a sort of a conflict averse, very, uh, you know, here I am in suburbia kind of person and that like, oh, embrace the weirdness, embrace that thing that like, how did that even get onto the screen? Did I write that? That's the thing that you were actually trying to get to and all that, uh, you know, setting and description and backstory, just cut that stuff and get to the heart of it. Mm -hmm. Um, so that was, that was a wonderful A brief but but intense experience um, that helped me learn quite a bit about how to read and how to write
0: Hmm. um when you were writing the place you're supposed to laugh Mm -hmm. was there a moment when that happened to you that you realized oh this is what he was talking about and this is what I'm doing there there are several moments where um
1: I I would have been talking, uh, you know, setting two characters, for example, into a conversation, and I'm a, I'm a very, as I said, conflict-averse person, and so I would never have them quite say what they were really thinking, um, but I would be confident that there's this, like, deep-simmering thing, and it's all in subtext, and readers are really going to pick up on that, and uh, the sort of Jim Shepard lesson was like, well, maybe they're not going to say exactly what it, what it is that's bugging them, but they're going to say something. That doesn't just keep this at the same emotional pitch of smoothing it over, but that kind of shakes it up and makes you suddenly aware of all that stuff that's right under there. Maybe there's, these people still aren't going to be the people who are going to say it, um, but th- that moment of weirdness, of strangeness, of slight dissonance um, can be tremendously powerful. Of course, it can't happen on every page or it doesn't work, um, but but definitely I tried to, to let that happen a little more often than I was quite comfortable with. Um, and I think that took it to some interesting places.
0: Hmm. Um, the novel is set in Palo Alto in 2002. <laughs> Were you there at the time? What was going on specifically?
1: Um, so I was in uh, Berkeley. Um, so, so one way I gave myself a little narrative distance there is that <laughs> I was at Berkeley, not Stanford. So it's different. Um, but but yeah i was in berkeley for the 90s and then right at the beginning about 2001 i moved to southern california and for me once i'm not in a place anymore it's much easier to write about that place so i having just moved myself a few hundred miles i started to write about a bit about what it had been like to be in the bay area and and to be also In a sort of technological world, even though I was in school and grad school, I knew a lot of people who dropped out or um, were day trading on the side because the market had done this crazy thing in the late 90s. uh, And the dot-com bubble had had just lifted so many portfolios and so many people who had just sort of half-baked ideas for companies or kind of, you know, whimsical notions of products they might want to offer uh, were getting money and had foosball tables in their offices. And they were just having this great time, this very sort of collegiate experience, uh, mock, standing in for a corporate experience. And so they were all doing tremendously well. And then suddenly the dot-com bubble burst and they were not doing well at all anymore. And uh, that context of a bunch of people who had believed themselves to be invincible geniuses now wandering around saying, wait, who am I now? Um, what am I supposed to do if I'm not a content provider or a whatever? Um, that is the world in which I, I set this um, family-based story, neighborhood-based story, um, where you've got a range of characters very having very specific kind of identity crises.
0: Hmm. So that was the genesis of the novel then. Set it here mm-hmm. against this backdrop. Different. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. There... You know, there is there's this character Scott who's next to this, uh, what this family was not the same status as him, I suppose. Right. Um, and you're writing about the kind of disparity in sort of, you know, one of the things I think you, I guess we all reckon with in the adult world, which is this like, I'm I'm working harder than him, I'm getting less. People don't okay. see me as this, or they see me as that, and and then similarly, I think with the with Chad's the. Teenage character and the friends that he makes, there's the same idea of they don't see me the same way I see myself. Um, mm-hmm. Has that been your experience in different jobs you've worked in, places you've lived?
1: That's been my experience in most of my life, I think. Um, so we moved around a lot when I was young, and so I was always the new girl. And so in a variety of schools, I would have to be introducing myself. Um, and bring with me this whole repertoire I developed at whatever previous school I was at. Like these are the things that made me, you know, connect with people, uh, and that seemed to be reasonably well accepted in that previous environment. And now here, nope, <laughs> that's not going to fly. And I'm not viewed as in the same way that I had thought I was viewed. And I've got to quick learn some new tricks and engage with these new people. On new contexts, on new themes, um, so that that was sort of consistent. And then I've got this thing where I'm I'm an engineer and also a fiction writer. So I'm for I was forever being the engineer in the corner of the, the fiction workshop, thinking, boy, they they <laughs> they don't know what I'm really like. They don't know how deeply I really care about literature. They think I'm just trying to get this, you know, course credit or whatever. Uh, or they're waiting for me to write, just let go and write about science fiction, like they know they're they're expecting me to. Um, i I began to finally take it as a bit of a compliment when a room full of fiction writers would say, "Oh, well, you don't seem like an engineer, um, or vice versa. but but it does kind of get to you because I am, right? <laughs> and so why do I keep not seeming like the thing that I am? Um, but there it is. but I, I suspect that it's a pretty universal feeling of uh, having one sense of yourself and not having that not always quite match up with the perceptions of people around you. Um, I know that I can instantly make myself reasonably invisible and anonymous um, by wearing the sort of getup that other suburban moms wear, right? Like a puff coat and some black leggings. And suddenly I'm just one of this like anonymous army of moms and no one wants to talk to me about literature or engineering uh and no, no one would guess that i would like to talk to them about those things when i'm in that that kind of mode
0: uh, my friends in norway i don't think any of them are engineers and that's quite deliberate because i see enough of them at work <laughs> um but because of the way uh you know it's engineering is such a popular profession in these big cities so i'll be in oslo and like one of my friends will have read, like, one of my little indie books I get published and say, oh, that's so great, and I'll I want to talk to them about that, but they'll be with their husband, who will be like, so, Leo, like, what's what's the oil price these days? And I'm like, I don't, I don't know, like, <laughs> I don't, like, why is he talking to me like that? And then I go, oh, right, that's my job, that's the whole way I am. Right. That's why he's talking to me that way, because I am outwardly this thing <laughs> that I don't appear to have any interest in right now. <laughs> so it's... <laughs> it's... it's, it's I I understand that I relate really well to that identity crisis I think and and what's well, not not crisis just a kind of funny absurdity. You know I think that uh there's I mean there's a great scene with Scott and Chad that they're both playing Tony Hawk together. Mm-hmm. And it's so great because it's like you can tell that what Chad's father has this impression of this guy that he's like the enemy and everything and he's just like a basically decent guy who likes to play video games. Um mm-hmm. like I just think it's really great how well you uh, displayed these disparities and diffuse them with humor, because oh, it's like that's. I mean, it, it is kind of absurd, right? Is there any way to to navigate this? These kind of ways that we look at each other, is there a conclusion to it? Is it an ongoing struggle?
1: I I hope we can navigate that, and I think one of the ways is through reading stories and reading fiction, and and trying to see through each other's eyes uh, a little more than we can in real life right um we make so many assumptions about each other and you know of course the book is set in 2002 but in 2018 in the united states uh, and in a variety of other places we've we've got some real issues with making assumptions about each other and not really engaging and finding out what's what might be actually going on in a a person's mind or what what else they might have to offer besides the, the superficial, oh, based on your job, I think, I'm thinking only this about you. Um, so I, I hope that, that reading is one way to do that, and that not that I wrote this uh, intending for it to be a sort of morality tale or anything, or a fable, um, but I, I do think that by looking at a whole spectrum of characters and highlighting and um, dramatizing the way we misperceive each other, um, that that might be useful to each of us as we read um, to to see and perhaps reflect on, on how often we might do that in real life.
0: Hmm. I think one of my favorite parts was uh, Diana. Uh, mm-hmm. This She's a physicist and the mother. She's balancing that, and that's obviously very funny. And then she has this list of things that her mother told her. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. <so> good. <laughs> what good. My favorite one is... Um, that you'll regret not playing the oboe anymore or something (laughs) you yourself are a mother and I, I have to imagine that is maybe based on your relationship with your mother but as as a mother now how do you how do you when you reflect on this idea of parenting as you experienced it how do you adapt that or change it when you when you apply it to your own children
1: so that's that's really interesting um I feel like, first of all, every day that I'm a mother, I have wanted to call my own mother and just apologize for something, right, (laughs) and say, wow, I really, I do see things from a slightly different perspective now, Um, but at the same time, I uh, can easily remember what it was like to be the age that my children are, right, I have a 14-year-old now, and I remember um, acutely what it feels like to be 14. Uh, and, and some of the angst that is just with you always, um, and the, the sense again, that, that both, um, 14 year olds in general, and certainly my character Chad have of not quite knowing who you are or who your people are and kind of trying out different people, different role models and things. And and remembering that is is helpful when my own daughter, for example, might say, you know, so and so's mother is so much cooler than you, and I'd like to hang out with her. You go, okay, um, that's a little hurtful, but at the same time this is a completely normal thing for you to be doing. Um, literally, I wrote a book about it, so I should probably not take it too personally. <laughs> um, I mean, what a huge part of parenting just not holding a grudge is, right? Because your your kids are going to push against you so often because they know they can come back to you. Um, and and it, they don't mean anything personally hurtful by it 99% of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, again, because I'm a, a slow, a long apprenticeship kind of a writer... I started writing about Diana, the character you mentioned, who, who has a young daughter, long before I had children of my own. Uh, and so I was kind of imagining what what would that be like if you were trying to balance your career and your toddler, and what might some of those tensions be like? And while I, I think I have a better understanding of it now, my, my sort of anticipation of, of dealing with that was not... Was not way off. Um, I think a lot of, of what I expected or, or tried to imagine um, rang pretty true to me, um, which is sort of a good, uh, thinking like an engineer for a second, that's a good validation for the model the, of imagining yourself into someone else's life. And if you do that with empathy, curiosity, and, and sometimes research when the life is very different than your own, you might get it right. Um, <laughs> so, so that's, that's encouraging. Um, but I will say it's, it's challenging to write, uh, about mother daughter relationships and, and have my mother not assume that every mother is her. Um, because if there's a mom in the story, well, you can't disguise that. Right. Uh, and so some of the items on the list you mentioned, the lies that my character's mother tells her, some of those items are things my mom would say. She's still fond of telling me patience is a virtue. And, Uh, it's hard for her not to think that that means all those other things and every other description of that character must also be her. It's certainly not, as anyone who knows her uh, knows. But um, that's a hard thing about a fiction uh, writing gig, I think, is to persuade people that, uh, no, I really made that up. (laughs) Really, that's, that's not, even though it's a mom, it's not my mom. And even though this character is a mom and I'm a mom, she's not me. (laughs)
0: The better job you do of portraying interesting characters The more people are going to assume That you just took it from directly around you I suppose But that's nonsense That's a good point I'll take it as a compliment (laughs) No, no, I I mean, yeah, for (laughs) sure Um, See, that was another interesting thing So I just had one more point about this The divide between engineering and writing Mm -hmm. Is, you know, being an engineer Is this instantly impressive thing Most of the time and being a writer is something that people kind of feel they need to justify. I've seen you writing a little bit about that in your uh, interviews and so on. And there was this, I don't know if you know the book by Elizabeth Gilbert, Big Magic, one of her mm-hmm. recent ones? Oh, yeah. But yeah. well, she has a line in that which is that you don't need a permission slip to lead a creative life. hmm Do you agree with that or what's your perspective?
1: I, I would not agree with that, but I don't think you need someone else to give you the permission slip. I, for me, anyway, I needed to give myself permission, and it had to be a very kind of intentional um, look. This thing that you love doing feels profoundly selfish. It takes you away from people you love and activities that you cherish and are accountable for, um, but there is value in you doing it, even if the outside world is not, it's not extrinsic value. There's intrinsic value in you doing this. And so I, Jen Rossman, give Jen Rossman permission um, to, to work on fiction writing. Um, so I think probably I would have written more and faster if there had been an external permission slip Uh like a, the MFA program kind of a thing, right, where someone is saying, look, this is your this is basically your job, is get better at this thing for two years or so. Um, I think that would have helped me in some ways, but probably clobbered my self-esteem in others um, because of that sort of uh, competitive edge rather than a collaborative one that can exist in that environment sometimes. I think I would have done a lot of comparing, especially if I'd gone when I was younger. Um, and so, In retrospect, I don't I don't lament the lack of an MFA, but I do think that that permission can be valuable. Um, But I also think you can give it to yourself. Um, I also want
0: to
1: you said the first thing you said was engineering is this respected thing. I'm not sure that that's necessarily true or good. Right. That we might uh, think of sometimes people will think science and engineering are somehow objective Um, or of more value because those jobs pay better, you know, than maybe the standard humanities degree might immediately lead you to. Uh, And I just think those are just false um, hierarchies that I would like to push against whenever possible. You know, engineering is just another way of knowing stuff. There's plenty of of politics and bias baked in uh, to our products and our processes that we're, we've got to unpack and, and improve on now. Um, but uh, but I, I hope that we could maybe bring uh, things into a, a healthier balance where we see how society benefits if, if we equally honour many possible ways of knowing and and
0: things people can do with their time. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, no I, I totally agree, all I mean is it's kind of an automatically respected <laughs> thing well I don't know how it is for you but if I, again if I'm at a party meeting a new person and you tell them you're an engineer, they do kind of they're, they're startled or impressed, but I don't know what kind of. Uh, I don't know how my knowledge of pipes impacts a friendship. <laughs> I don't know why it has to be respected yeah. to this person in front of me. It's not like it's. It's not like it, it changes my value as a friend.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, they, but they don't. They don't immediately follow it with, "Please tell me more about pipes." Right? It's not like it's fascinating. Um, it's. I think it's that weird um, sort of stem hierarchy thing where maybe. They uh, they didn't like calculus or something, and they're like, "Whoa! There there must be a wall around that field that, or uh, you know, that field of knowledge that I didn't want to want to climb that wall of calculus or, or whatever it was." Um, it, it's not harder or more valuable or or any of those things. And again, uh, when people do do that little reaction, that they're not. It's not because they just. Would love to hear more about, say, the Navier-Stokes equations. Though I would be glad if someone wanted to ask me about the Navier-Stokes equations at any time, in any place.
0: Tell me about the Navier-Stokes equations.
1: <laughs> you have made my year. Oh, they're a beautiful way of expressing the fact that fluids must obey uh, the balance of forces, uh, equaling their inertia.
0: But will it's we so. ever come up with a theory of turbulence? Oh, another fantastic question. Um, I,
1: a theory, I doubt. I think we're going to, to be stuck with with trying to model turbulence and estimate and um, get as cl- close as possible. But there's so much randomness and perturbation that uh, I doubt we'll get down to one
0: singular theory. Hmm. But that's great. Is there anything else we should know about you? Anything else you want to tell us? You're going on this tour. You're you're maybe you 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 finished other manuscripts as well, right?
1: i I did so this I, I as I said was a it was a long apprenticeship. so as part of my apprenticeship uh, to the great fiction writers who I admire, I wrote uh, three other novels that are now safely stored in drawers and will not see light. Um, but i've've finished a, a fifth book um, that might might be the follow up to the place you're supposed to laugh will be I'll be revising it over the next year. Um, and I have a collection of short stories that I would love to to see as a fully formed thing. Um, it's been wonderful having them appear in a variety of journals, but it would be also lovely to collect them in some way. Um, that would be really cool. And then the other writing that I do is is that I love to write these book reviews for uh, a journal called Public Books. Um, I have a series called An Engineer Reads a Novel, um, which is the first time in my life I've figured out how to combine these two ways of thinking about the world um, through sort of literary criticism and thinking like an engineer and thinking about how technology and society uh, interact um, and the sort of the place of technology and culture. So I hope people will check out those book reviews
0: because I, I really enjoy writing them. I did I read, uh, I read the most recent one and it was so it, it was uh, I can't remember the name of the book but you were talking about the ethics of drones
1: Oh yeah so that this is Mohammed um, uh, Hanif's new book uh, Red Birds. Which is really cool, Um, really wild, sort of um, like a, you know, sort of Pakistani Joseph Heller kind of thing that he does. If you read A Case of Exploding Mangoes, that was his first book. Uh, Really cool. Um, But yeah, I I like thinking about what makes a book work literarily, but also what it might kind of tell us, you know, about um, technology's role in the wider
0: society. Awesome. Well, yeah, I'll I'll keep reading those for sure. Um, <laughs> Thanks. So there you go. That was Jen Stroud-Rossman. Her novel is The Place You're Supposed to Laugh. It's out with 713 books. It's out now and I highly recommend that you pick up a copy. Mine arrived when I got back here to the island where I work. And it's very pretty and I look forward to reading it and then passing it on to my sister as I said it would. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the chat and I hope you yourself are considering picking up a copy uh so before i go as always if you are a reader writer listener editor of something uh, an artist a creative person of any kind and you want to come on the show if you are a fan of the show and you want to say hi whatever possible reason you could have for getting in touch with me as long as it's nice uh you can use losing the plot podcast at gmail.com and i always look forward to hearing from you Uh, but that's all for me for now so bye bye